Today's reading from the Word of God comes from selected verses from Acts chapter 28, starting with verse 16. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's selected verses from Acts chapter 28, starting with verse 16. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Rock through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of that hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello again. Well, like Pastor Ethan said, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. I am so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Happy Fourth of July weekend, um, as well as happy um, Thompson, this is birthday day. So we like to take a moment at the beginning of our sermons and just pause reflect on what we brought into the room this morning to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us in our stories. And so I want to invite you to do that with me this morning, and I will open us in a word of prayer after a moment. Lord God, we thank you for your spirit and your word, which challenges and changes us and transforms us. We thank you about all the things that you have been teaching us about your transformation through the book of Acts. And we pray that this morning would be an invitation towards an, that ongoing work. We pray that those of us who are here and asking questions about you, that we would feel invited and compelled to join you as your disciples today. That we would explore what that means. And for those of us who are waiting, for those of us who've been waiting for something to change before we'll say yes, we pray that you would challenge us to say yes today. Not tomorrow, but today. We love you. We worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in college, one of my professors taught us a couple of Yiddish words, and I don't remember many of them, but I remember two of them. Shlemiel and Shlemazel. Has anyone heard of these words, Shlemiel and Shlemazel? A Shlemiel is someone who spills their soup, and a Shlemazel is someone who gets the soup spilled on them. I am both a Shlemiel and a Shlemazel. I chronically spill things, and the person that I spill on the most is me. 
People sometimes comment on how much I spill and how often I wear white clothes, which I'm wearing this morning, but it's a trick because you can bleach white clothes, which is very helpful for someone who is both a shlemiel and a shlemazel. But I am not alone. I inherited this. This is a family problem. My sister is also a shlemiel and a shlemazel, and our husbands are constantly sending each other pictures of our kitchen counters and floors after we've poured coffee or the dining room table after we've eaten dinner. So I'll show you a few of my favorite masterpieces. I call this one, Bryn successfully uses a milk frother. <laughs> this one is floor after Bryn successfully makes fresh bread. Here's Bryn successfully eats <laughs> up coffee. <laughs> I love this one. This one was from vacation. Bryn puts ratatouille in the fridge, a still life. <laughs> and this is my favorite one. This one you can't even see, like it actually made it all the way up to the top of that door. This one I call creative types cannot be contained. Our husbands are elegant and refined. They can pour coffee and eat a meal with precision and grace. My sister and I leave crumbs and puddles everywhere. When Aaron and I got married, my brother-in-law pulled him aside at the wedding and gave him a piece of brotherly advice. He said, from now on, you just need to strap paper towels to the bottoms of your shoes and just follow Bryn around. That will be your life now. He wasn't wrong. There was a time I was the keynote speaker at an event, and I'm about to get up to speak, and I'm sitting in the pew, and I'm like, I should have a snack real quick, and so I pull out a banana, and I open the banana, and the banana like shoots like a projectile, per perfect parabola in front of me onto the stage. It like rolls in front of the communion table, and all the, the people in the front three pews see this, and they laugh at me, so I go over and I get it, and then I ate it. And I don't even have kids. I just did that because I am a shlemiel and a shlemazel, and that's how we roll. But I'm not telling you all of this to make you feel sorry for me. I'm actually quite proud of my shlemielazelness. <laughs> I came across an article a few months ago about something called the pratfall effect. Has anyone heard of the pratfall effect? I love the pratfall effect. The pratfall effect is a series of studies that says that people who spill on themselves or people who make regular mistakes, people who are a little bit clumsy, are often perceived as more likable, generally, than people who don't often make noticeable mistakes. As humans, we know that we make mistakes, and we like being assured that other people make mistakes, too. I love the pratfall effect, because it is real science that objectively proves that my sister and I are very, very likable. <laughs> humans like it, when other humans make mistakes. And yet, when it comes to ourselves, most of us don't really believe in the pratfall effect. We love to make see other people make mistakes. We know that we make mistakes, but we don't want anyone else to see us making them because we think that they won't like us if they do. Most of us live in this belief that we will be more likable if we're perfect, if we're flawless, if we never admit our mistakes at all, not to each other, not to God, and sometimes even not to ourselves. So we live with filters everywhere. We filter out the challenging parts of our lives, the painful moments, the insecurities, the doubts, the struggles, because we don't know how people will respond if we're truly honest about them, if we show who we really are. In our world, we're taught to exhibit our skills, our strengths, our successes. We're taught to put our best foot forward, not advertise our Achilles heels. And yet all of us, all of us struggle with something, right? Maybe you're a little bit clumsy like me, 
or you struggle with a habit that you just can't shake. Or maybe it's deeper. Maybe you're carrying a wound or an insecurity, some shame, some issue that you just don't want anyone to know about you. That breakup that ruined everything. That wound we got when we shared our idea, our creativity, our true and honest selves with someone that we trusted, and we got hurt in that process. That subtle fear that maybe we don't belong here, and one wrong move and everyone's going to find out. We believe that when people find out about the issues in our lives, when we're actually honest about our wounds and about our tender places, that they'll learn that we're not really that worth that much. And they'll just move on, condemn us, reject us, judge us, because we aren't as we should be. So those areas that we know that we are bruised or broken, those things that we're sure would drive others away if they saw them, we hide those things. We hold them back. And we end up in a world where everyone is convinced that we are the only one with issues, which makes it that much more lonely that we are. Well, this morning we are wrapping up our spring sermon series, which we've been calling In Good Spirit, Transformation in the Book of Acts. And all throughout the last couple of months, we've been looking at the book of Acts in the early church, and we've been exploring ways that the Holy Spirit transforms every aspect of our lives, our conflicts, our communities, our culture. And this morning, we're going to take a look at how God invites us into ongoing transformation, even for us shlemiels and shlemazels. So let's recap where the story started. In the first chapter of Acts, we are given the goal, the great dream. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then the Holy Spirit arrives in power with wind and fire, and the gospel is preached powerfully. And people start coming to faith in droves. And whenever opposition arises, so does the power of the Holy Spirit to meet it. People are uh, getting arrested because they're spreading the name of Jesus. They're being put in jail. But every time the, the jail door swings open and they're set free, and then the jailers come to faith. It's this incredible season for the life of the church. The gospel is on the move from Jerusalem to the larger region of Judea, up north to Samaria. And then the Apostle Paul takes it deep into the Greco-Roman world, to Antioch, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Ephesus. And when we meet Paul in this moment, his plan is to head to Rome. Now, if your starting point is Jerusalem, then Rome is to the ends of the earth. Rome was the goal. But first, Paul decides he's going to head back home to Jerusalem for a week, just pop in for a little R&R, &R. and on the last day of that pit stop, something happens that Paul does not expect. A Jewish crowd sees him, and they falsely accuse him of teaching against the Jewish religion, and it doesn't take long before their fears and their accusations turn into a violent flash mob. So take a look back at chapter 21, verse 30. It says, The whole city was aroused. And the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So Paul was on his way to Rome to spread the word of the gospel there, and instead he ends up bound up in chains. From that moment on, for the entire final eight chapters of the book of Acts and the rest of Paul's life, these false accusations never stop. He's always under arrest. His chains never come off. 
There was this fast movement in the Gospel of Acts at the beginning of the story, and now it's slowing down to a crawl. Paul is falsely accused. He's under arrest. He's constantly awaiting trial. And this drags on for years. He does defend himself before the Jewish crowds, then before the Sanhedrin, then to the local governor, Felix. Two years later, before the governor, Festus, then before King Agrippa. And finally, he requests to make an appeal to the Roman emperor himself. And he's put on a ship to Rome, still in chains. And on his way to, to Rome, he endures a storm and a shipwreck, a snake bite, people randomly thinking he's a god. It's a weird story. But he finally arrives in Rome, and he's still on house arrest with a soldier guarding him, and he's still in chains. And this is how Paul lives out the rest of his days. Does the Holy Spirit ever rush in and break off the chains and convert the prison guard like before? No. Does Paul ever get to clear his name with the emperor, prove his integrity? If he does, the story does not tell us that. Does Paul escape and start planting underground churches all over Rome? No. After two years, he's still under house arrest, still in chains. The book of Acts starts off with this visible show of God's power and strength. And we are excited to be God's witnesses to that power in this story. But here at the end, it just slows to a crawl. And suddenly, Paul isn't out performing miracles and preaching to the masses and traveling the world anymore. He's just under arrest, jumping through legal hoops, being passed from governor to governor. All of a sudden, his witness is slowed down. And it's bound by all sorts of different things that come up. Have you ever experienced anything like that? We hear and experience God's great power. We're excited to be witnesses to it. But then our story gets arrested by something, slowed down, and we become bound to the shlemiel and shlemazel circumstances of our lives. It can be so many different things. You, you were inspired to start giving sacrificially, but then the car breaks down again. You thought that that new medication was going to do the trick, but that nagging depression just won't go away. You picked up everything, you moved to a new neighborhood, you found a great church, you wanted to start serving there, and then you lost the relationship. Someone died, and life just started to feel like it was dropping out from under you. And we can't help but hesitate. Okay, yes, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I want to see this story keep going. But I want to go into it prepared, right? Complete, whole, ready, equipped, confident, on top of my game. Like, don't you want me to shake off some of this baggage first? Take off some of these chains? Overcome that sin? Wrap up those loose ends? Don't you want me to stop spilling my soup first? Jesus, you take the, the wheel while I pay this bill. Wipe this butt, fold this laundry, finish this email, get this struggle under control, and then maybe a few other things. And maybe by tomorrow, maybe by tomorrow I'll be ready to be your disciple. We compensate for being a shlemiel and a shlemazel with a tomorrow discipleship. We tell Jesus about the disciple that we will very soon become, just after we finish paying that credit card, getting through that crisis, losing that weight, writing that next chapter. But here's the hard thing. Paul's chains never get taken off in this life. His circumstances remained. And we have this interesting line in Acts 28. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there. He didn't go anywhere. His limiting circumstances remained. The entire end of the book, Paul is stuck in a house under arrest, 
with chains on his hands, and at the same time, the passage goes on to say this, and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and this is really interesting, without hindrance. Without hindrance. His life plan was very plainly hindered, but he proclaimed the gospel without hindrance, from prison. I love the the verse that Paul writes to Timothy. It says, I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word in me and through me, God's word is not chained. Paul didn't wait for his brokenness to be made whole before letting the power of the Holy Spirit transform his life and the lives of other people through him. He invited the Spirit to enter into those circumstances, into his issues, into his struggles, into his prison cell today, not tomorrow after it all got figured out. And Paul was transformed, not in spite of his circumstances, but because of them, in the midst of them, and through them. God met Paul in prison. And so out of Paul's prison cell, we have received some of the most powerful letters that the world has ever known. Paul was hindered, but the spirit alive and at work in Paul was unhindered. And Paul's weaknesses only serve to highlight God's strength in his life even more. You know, all throughout this sermon series, we've been talking about transformation, how the power of the Holy Spirit transforms our lives, how that power that is beyond ourselves can actually change our conflicts, our communities, our stories, our society, and our world. And it does. And that's true. But here's the thing. So much of the time when we pray, we ask God to change our circumstances, and we stop there. Take away my grief. Take away my pain. Fix all these mistakes. And sometimes God does those things. Sometimes the situation does get fixed. Sometimes we do get healed. Sometimes miraculously even. But not always. God doesn't promise to always fix the circumstances in our lives, but God does promise to transform us in the midst of them. We aren't promised a perfect life, but we are promised that God can use our weakness, our mistakes, even our deep pain to connect us more and more with the heart of Christ. So how can our lives loudly proclaim the power of Jesus without hindrance in the midst of all of the hindrances and chains that can threaten us spiritually? How can we be disciples not in that far off tomorrow, after our chains are off, but today, right now, even in the midst of the things that we're working through? Many of you are familiar with the life of Nelson Mandela. He was a lawyer, a revolutionary, a political activist, and eventually the president of South Africa. But he was also a prisoner for 27 years, mostly stayed in a tiny cell. Can you imagine being stuck in a prison cell for 27 years? In 27 years of waiting, bound up, I could probably become the world's greatest tomorrow disciple with this grand vision of what I'm going to accomplish once I get out of prison. But that's not how Mandela approached his chains. His biographer wrote, Nelson Mandela had many teachers in his life, but the greatest of them all was prison. Mandela did not simply wait for his chains to be taken off, to be a witness, to be a disciple, to live and fight for truth and justice in the world, the things that he so deeply cared about as a Christ follower. 
What allowed him to make such a powerful impact on the world was that he let his chains, his limiting circumstances, teach him. And that's what the Apostle Paul did too. He knew that God could loosen all the chains in his life. He'd seen it happen before. And he would have loved for that to happen here, I'm sure. But instead, Paul let his chains teach him. Paul once, once describes a vision where he's experiencing this incredible moment, but then he's stuck with something that he called a thorn in his flesh, and it torments him. And scripture doesn't tell us what that thorn was, although there's all kinds of speculation about what it was. All we know is that Paul lived with a persistent struggle, a struggle that never fully went away in this life. And it keeps him from enjoying and freely embracing everything that God has for him. So God, Paul pleads for God to remove it. Does Paul seem to believe that God gave him the thorn? No, he doesn't. But does God remove the thorn? No. Does God ease the pain? No. Does God tell Paul what God is up to in the process? No. So what does Paul do about that? He doesn't wait for it to be removed. He doesn't wait until tomorrow and hope he's going to feel better then. No, he lets the thorn, the limitations, teach him. And they teach him about humility and reliance on Christ. He learns to confront his own weakness so that he can rely completely on the power of the Spirit of God. The only thing that he knows will actually transform him and actually transform the world. He writes this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, my power is made perfect in weakness. I know this is true, even though it is totally counterintuitive. I was talking with a, a new church member this week, and we were swapping stories, and we were talking about things that God has done in our lives and in our calls to ministry. And as I shared my story and how I got here, things that I've learned, struggles that I've had in my life, she listened carefully, and then she said something that I loved. She said, your struggles encourage me. Your struggles encourage me. My process demonstrated to her that all of us could be in process, and that the process that she was going through could actually do something, that it could actually bring her closer to Jesus, not as a finished product, but in the meantime, just like mine had. My struggle encouraged her. I am a shlemiel and a shlemazel, and allowing that and the other things I struggle with in my life to teach me, to change me, and then sharing that journey with someone else that honestly, that honesty could encourage her. And this isn't easy in the church. As pastors, we are trained to be vulnerable in the pulpit, to a point. I am trained to share my journey and my story with you, but I was told in seminary never to tell about a struggle that I am currently going through, something that's still in process, only to share about things that are resolved. And there's wisdom in that. I shouldn't be processing in real time here in the pulpit something that I should be processing with my therapist or with spiritual mentors. And at the same time, over time, that can kind of communicate in the church that everything needs to be resolved before we're going to share it with another Christian. We can totally share that struggle tomorrow after it's fixed. But sometimes, sometimes sharing our struggles with someone that we can trust in the church Sometimes sharing that is what heals it. When it comes into the light, that's when it can be transformed. And just as a quick aside, the lesson here is not that we should just resign ourselves to life as it is. 
that we should just give in to the addiction or the bad habit or our apathy or our cynicism because that's the thorn we've got. This doesn't mean that we should just let the health issue or the mental health struggle go undiagnosed or unprescribed or unhealed. That we should just let the broken systems and structures in our world just stay broken and just try to learn through them as they are. No, by the power of the Holy Spirit, things in our world and in our lives and in our bodies, they can change. And they do change. And they will change. And God tells us as Christians to be actively transformed as people and to be active in joining Christ and transforming the world around us. Nelson Mandela fought hard to end apartheid in South Africa after his time in prison, but it was largely because he let those years transform and shape him into the kind of man and the kind of Christian who could. The point is not just to resign or give in. The point is to allow God to change us now, not tomorrow. To meet God within our current circumstances, not after they're figured out, and to see what God can powerfully do in them. Paul picked up his chains each day. He wore that thorn in his side, and he witnessed God's power in them. What better display of the gospel, of God's power to raise people from the dead, to set sinners free, to transform broken lives, than a stumbling, shipwrecked, shackled, shlemiel, and shlemazel like Paul, courageously and lovingly preaching, advancing the Jerusalem, advancing the gospel all the way from Jerusalem to Rome and the ends of the earth, even, even when everyone tried to stop him in the process. Well, before we close, I wanted to give some space for someone to share their, a story of their struggle and God's hope in the midst of it. So some of you have met Connor Mazzelli. Uh, he showed up at our church this winter, and I loved meeting Connor because he did not hold back about his journey from day one. It took like 30 seconds of conversation before he shared with me something that he was going through, something that he needed healing from, something he knew that he needed God to fix because he couldn't fix it on his own, and he had tried. He jumped into the life of our community, of, of our church right away because he was confident that without sticking close to Jesus and without sticking close to a community of other disciples of Christ followers who could encourage him along the way, he wasn't going to get through it, through this. So I have loved watching him join the life of our church at every turn. He looks for every opportunity that he can to be involved, to join in the ministry like he has been ministered to. He joined a life group. He joined a ministry team. Last weekend, he helped some new high rockers move into their new home just because he wanted to be part of the ministry. And he is constantly inviting people to come with him to church to consider Jesus because he knows firsthand the power of God's strength made perfect, not in spite of his weakness, but through it. Connor was so thrilled when I asked him to share his story because he wanted his honesty to encourage others to find healing by bringing their struggles into the light. But he couldn't be with us in person today, so he recorded it for us. So we'll watch. It's about a seven-minute video. Good morning, everyone. My name is Connor Maselli, and I am, uh, I'm very grateful and beyond uh, blessed to be able to have the uh, opportunity and privilege to uh, share a little bit about myself with the congregation of High Rock um, North Shore this uh, Sunday. For those of you who are not too familiar with me or know anything about me for that matter, let me give you a quick background of my story and my upbringing uh, so that you guys kind of understand where I'm coming from and why I'm compelled to share this with you today. Um, so growing up uh, was, was all fun and games for a while for me until my life changed up, in, uh, up until the fifth grade. Um, 
I, I transitioned from a public school to a, a private middle school, and uh, school definitely wasn't as much fun as it used to be. Um, I went through what I'm sure a lot of folks in the uh, community can attest to uh, at one point or another. I was definitely uh, pretty aggressively bullied um, by what, who I deemed as my friends at the time, in eighth, uh, and this persisted through eighth grade. Uh, this was a foreign concept to me because up until this point in my life, uh, I had pretty good friends for the most part, weren't too judgmental, and they definitely didn't teach me how to be ashamed of myself or, or focus too much about how I appeared outwardly to the world. Um, my perception of the world just kind of grew darker. Um, I harbored resentments, grew insecure, and consequently I rationalized everything anyone did or said to me. Um, this kind of just caused a downward spiral for me and uh, I became cynical. I just dwelled in this this stew and this pit of self-pity and um, remorse and this just kind of permeated all, to all different aspects and areas of my life. Um, in high school I, I was isolating. Um, I was petrified to even look people in the eyes. <laughs> um, I was, I constantly call it, I was, I was afraid. I got this from my mom actually. I was just afraid of my own shadow. Um, I, I couldn't look people in the eyes. I was just too afraid of, of what people uh, would think about me. Um, my parents got me a ton of mental support, though. They, uh, they encouraged me to see therapists, psychiatrists, dietitians, physical trainers, everything and anything, uh, just an abundance of um, incredible resources and a, a support system at home. But none of this was enough for me to, to, see, to see who the, the value in myself. Um, I was still just damaged goods in my own eyes. Uh, as I got to college, I started engaging in extremely harmful behaviors and thought patterns. Uh, and really, I fell in love with consuming copious amounts of drugs and alcohol for when my mental calamity and the stresses of life just were too much for me to bear. That was my solution that I employed, and that was my way out. Um, and as I engaged more so into these these behaviors, um, I like I said, I, I crossed these moral boundaries that I once perceived as unforgivable acts, um, but I, I soon began finding myself justifying my own actions. And I grew, I grew uh, accustomed to and, and even comfortable in deflecting my accountability. Uh, toward the end of my undergraduate college experience and even into my career, uh, the solution uh, being drugs and alcohol that I now found is the most efficient means to take away all my problems initially started to subside in its effectiveness and even started taking away from, from me as a, as a human being. Um, I needed more and more until finally my lust for pleasure uh, couldn't be satisfied anymore and I was exiled into a place of such mental, uh, emotional and physical deterioration I couldn't even describe it to you. Something uh, was looking out for me though when I couldn't even look out for myself. Um, I went into detox eventually afterwards um, in Hartford, after about two years of being employed in the workforce, um, I went to a 30-day program in Connecticut called High Watch, and uh, I took my recovery to what's called the Wenham House, which is a 12-step uh, sober home in uh, Wenham, Mass., right next to Beverly. Uh, this is where I was first introduced, really introduced to the fellowship, the sponsorship, and the altruistic steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. After my first two months at the Wenham House, um, Growing closer to Thanksgiving, I I had made up my mind that I figured it all out. Uh, I was an AA all-star. I knew everything about the program and its teachings. Uh, the pride that I had and uh, the overconfidence um, 
and the, and the exterior self-seeking motives and, and the show I just put, the external outward show I put on for others just started to take over and it drove all my thinking until one day after Thanksgiving I, I had already made up my mind I was going to relapse and uh, I decided I was going to take a, a, uh, a drug to enhance my, or to get me through uh, writing my uh, fourth step, which uh, is, is exactly what, uh, what Bryn describes in, in her sermon as the tomorrow disciple. That's, that, that was me. I was like, ah, I'll be a drug addict today, but tomorrow I'll, I'll, I'll be a disciple. So I, like, I'd be willing to embrace God just as soon as I get through this hurdle in my life, like whatever it was, whether it was an exam for a certification or, or, um, or just a, a stressful time, just a big project in my life, whatever it was, I always thought I needed to get through it. Once, once I got through this, then I'd, then I'd be willing to show my, my uh, dedication to being a disciple. Uh, today, I live with a thorn, much like Paul, in my in my mentality, my my spiritual condition, and my judgment. I'm spiritually and mentally sick. Um, the only hope I have is is staying completely abstinent from uh, alcohol and drug use. This thorn makes me who I am, though, and it will never go away. Um, and today, by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, am I a recovered al alcoholic slash addict. It's all one and the same to me, who no longer suffers from the hopeless state of mind and body, as Bill W. writes in the big book. God, God showed me that it's completely fine with being vulnerable. In fact, that's why I think that, that quote that, that Bryn uses, uh, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's why it's so important. Without me being vulnerable, I'm not, I'm not human. You'll meet me right where I'm at. Uh, my pride ran the show for so long in my life that I realized that uh, it's nothing short of a miracle that God helped me to see the, the benefits of humility. But I think it's a great reflection of how I view humility now paradoxically as a sign of vulnerability uh, that could potentially give others hope. Um, how my service work through AA can help the next person and me admitting my experience of being vulnerable as an alcoholic in my recovery, my, my weaknesses, from a seemingly hopeless disease can also be a source of strength and hope for someone else. Um, that's all I got today. Thank you for listening to me, and uh, God bless. Connor, if you're on the live stream, thank you for sharing. Um, if you know Connor, I would encourage you to send him a text message or an email today and just let him know that you appreciated his vulnerability and courage in sharing a story. It is not easy to share a story like that. But as I've gotten to know him and as I watch stories like that and stories that I have heard from so many of you, friends, that is the power of the gospel, proclaimed without hindrance. Paul writes, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you struggle with, God's word, God's spirit, God's hope is not chained. And when we are tempted to give into that struggle, our invitation is to name it, to share it with God and with someone in the church that we trust, and to let God's, God's Holy Spirit transform us right in the middle of it all. So this morning, what would it look like for you to allow the Lord to meet you where you are as you are? and be transformed in that.
How can you testify not to your incredible successes or achievements, but to the grace of God who works in our weakness? What can it look like to see the, the Spirit transform you with power in ways that you could never experience when you're trying to fix them on your own? So friends, hear these words to you, spoken from Christ, as if he was saying them to you out loud. My grace is enough. It's sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect. It's made whole in weakness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for Connor. I thank you for what you've been doing in his life, in the lives of the other men that he lives with in the sober house. I thank you that you compelled him to check out our community and get to know you more and more through us. And I pray that you would continue to be with him in his journey, meeting with him in every step of the way, that he would experience more and more life and transformation, hope and healing. And we pray that his struggles would encourage us. We pray that those of us who are struggling with something right now, which, if we're honest, is all of us, that we would be compelled in the same way to share those struggles with you, with someone else in the church who can help us through them, and that we would experience your transformation, not later, not tomorrow, but right now, in the midst of those things. We offer ourselves to you. We want to be transformed in you. And so we ask that you would bring us to transformation, both personally and as a community, and that as that transformation spills out onto the rest of the world, we would be able to see your love and light taking deep, deep roots on the North Shore and beyond to the ends of the earth. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.